JB Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 69 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about geospatial data for claims and underwriting with Rachel Olney from Geosite. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. And always good. Coming in, you know, November, geez, 21's almost over with. If you're still struggling with creating a budget and setting an annual plan for 21, eh, probably time to just concede that's not going to happen and start working on 22. Hopefully that's not you. Hopefully like you were super on the ball out there in listener land and you're like, ah, oh, hell yeah, I hit my first three quarters and fourth quarter's going great. We nailed our budget. We exceeded our sales expectations, but uh, I've been in business 20 years. I know that's always... Not the case out there for all of you. Uh, of course, with us today, my illustrious co-host, the most interesting man in insurance, Mr. Rob Galbraith. Rob, how are you doing, bud? I'm doing awesome, James. Doing awesome. It's a little little colder here in Texas this week. Woo. We definitely had a, a turn of the season. Yep. Yeah, I got down to the 60s and I had to turn my heater on at the house. Like it was like, uh, of course, in, uh, in many parts of the country, they're putting shorts on at 60s, but uh, not here. No, no, we like it hot and hot and humid. Or when it gets this cold, they're like, I don't know about this. I need a sweater and a jacket. And joining us, not from Texas, of course, Rob and I are both in Texas. I'm in College Station. He's in San Antonio from Palo Alto, California. Pretty beautiful weather all year round. Rachel only. Rachel, how's it going? Good. And uh, our weather has been startlingly warm this week. It got really cold, then really warm, which is always really scary as a Californian because the heat can mean a lightning storm, which can mean fires. So I'm always very suspicious of, you know, October or November heat, but we've had enough rain. I think we'll we'll be okay. But yeah, it's beautiful out here. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, pretty much every time I've been out there, it's pretty. So you, got, you guys have the lockdown on weather. Yeah. I mean, you, you got the you got the lockdown on weather. You got that going on. Uh, and of course, uh, all kinds of interesting news this week out there. We're going to talk about at the end, just in general tech news, man. It's been a uh, it's been a fast moving week, but we're here to talk about insure tech now. Rachel and and Geosite work for more than just insurance, but we're gonna we're gonna limit this conversation to claims and underwriting, and and really geek out on geospatial data, which I am super fired up about. Before we get started with that, though, I want to remind all of you out there who are watching this live stream video on on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or on Vimeo uh, that you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek Podcast by texting GeekOut, G-E-E-K-O-U-T, GeekOut, to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. So let's just jump in. And uh, Rachel, before we talk about Geosite, we're going to talk about you for a second. Tell me, where were you born and raised and, and what did you dream of doing when you were a kiddo? Oh man, not running a software company. That's for sure. I had a winding path to end up where I am. I grew up on a farm in Southern New Mexico, uh, just North of the U S Mexico border. Um, and my dad was a contractor and my mom was a, you know, electrical engineer working on rockets and missiles and things. And, you know, look, I was lucky enough to get into some pretty good schools 
Uh, ended up at Stanford, still not quite sure what I was going to do because my entire, my sights had been set on being an astronaut. And after spending a week with one in high school, I decided it was actually not the job for me. They spend, you know, a couple hours a day exercising, a couple hours a day learning Russian and a couple hours a day training to do the, you know, the same things over and over in the space station. And I decided that would, that would not cut it. And so got to school having no idea what I was going to end up doing, went into AeroAstro for a little bit, then ended up in mechanical engineering, which is actually where I ended up getting all three of my degrees, bachelor's, master's, and then the PhD work that, that I'm doing is still in mechanical engineering. And so my specialty is there. And so when I when I think about, you know, other industries like insurance or oil and gas or or working with the military, a lot of what underpins the way I think is process design that comes from thinking through manufacturing. So just a, an obsession with efficiency is a, a good way of thinking about how that knowledge transported over. Now, New Mexico, interesting place. Yeah. Interesting place. I have been there uh, quite a few times. I'm a pilot, so I like to stop in New Mexico for gas sometimes. My favorite place to stop, probably not going to be able to guess this one, Deming, New Mexico. You ever been to Deming? I have, and I've landed at the airport. Yeah. Uh, I also, I, I fly planes and, you know, it's a, uh, it's a good airport, you know? Do you know Tony? You know Tony at Deming? Have you ever, did you meet the guy that runs the airport? <laughs> No. Okay. No. So when you get out, I mean, all right, for all of you, any listeners who are pilots <laughs> out there, when you get out of the plane at Deming, the FBO manager walks up to guys, Tony, and you say, hey, how you doing? A hundred percent of the time. And my, my dad has been stopping there for years. My dad's a pilot. Mom's a pilot. He goes, yeah. live in the dream. Because if you go to Deming, it's like this really long runway in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Okay. And there's nothing going on. Last time I was there was uh, a year, exactly 11 months ago. And uh, I got out. Say, Tony, how's it going? Living the dream. I said, Tony, I need a crew car. Okay, you got it. It's the van over there. I said, well, where are the keys? You don't need a key, buddy. <laughs> and you don't because you get in and you just turn the crank. There's no key required. My daughter was with me, a 14-year-old, and we drove from the Dimming Airport down to downtown Dimming. Downtown Dimming, in air quotes. And we go to this little good, I think it's called the Good Time Cafe, had the best Mexican tortas I have ever had in my entire life. And then we get yeah. back in the plane. So, all right. So you fly. Awesome. Well, I was going to, I was going to add for the pilots out there. There's also a VOR right near Deming Airport. So it's like yes, yes. a great way. It's, it's like basically one of your waypoints anyway. Yeah. So you might as well stop and have lunch, right? Like Delta Mike November. I mean, I actually had, <laughs> I had to use it one time when the, when the federal government was GPS jamming, they were doing a bunch of GPS jamming operations in South Texas. And I got towards El Paso headed towards Deming and my entire <laughs> screen went red and said, no GPS auto pilot disengaged. And I was like, oh, I guess we're navigating off VORs today. <laughs> so I dialed in the Deming VOR, put it on nav, and it was like, okay, we're going back to what I learned back in my PPL. So are you, are you, you have your, you have your pilot certificate and yeah, I do. I do. Instrument rating? No. Okay. So we got to, no, because if you're fly, if you're learning to fly and you're really only flying in Southern New Mexico, yeah. you don't really no, need it. there's never <laughs> instrument conditions. It's always, it's always extreme clear. And let me tell you something Yeah. in the Brazos Valley, it's foggy, you know, half the time. I, I took off in zero zero on uh, Tuesday. I mean, it was I could see like two hundred feet down the down the down the runway, you know. But it was it was enough for me to check the center line 
Uh, and then, I, of course, I was through it in three seconds, you know, because it was just a low, low lying yeah, fog. But, of course. Ooh, we, okay. All right, Rob, I'm not going to make the whole show about flying. <laughs> I promise. I promise. I think it's the first time we've had a pilot on the show. So you guys I know. can keep <laughs> with me, with me, so we can nerd. I don't know. There's, there's lots of like secret pilots. Like if you start asking people, you'll uncover, you'll uncover them. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool skill to have. It's a lot of fun to fly. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good, good thing to know how to do. So what led to the founding of Geosite? What was the, what's the, or, what's the superhero origin story? The superhero origin story involves a bunch of people who are a lot cooler than I am. So I had been studying the space industry and I, so I understood kind of, here's what's happening with satellites. Here's what is under, is happening with drones. Here's what's happening in IOT because of my, uh, my focus on industrial kind of manufacturing and things like that. Um, but what actually kicked off Geosite was I was working with our nation's most elite special operations team. And they were looking at, hey, what are new technologies that we can use to help increase the probability of mission success. So these are the kinds of guys who you see on movies who are rescuing hostages or who are, you know, going in and, and handling bad situations. And we were doing a root cause analysis on any missions that hadn't gone extraordinarily well. And their ability to rapidly pull together spatial data was just not there. And a lot of times what they would actually end up doing is, you know, printing out a map that would, you know, possibly even just be publicly available and, you know, drawing on it, sharing it with each other um, and not using the most cutting edge data or tools to plan missions because working with geospatial data is really, really technical and esoteric. And so I realized there was a gap where there were these non-technical users trying to use spatial data. And in this case, you know, people were actually dying because they didn't have access to this data. And so I got back, you know, after I was with this team for for a while, helping them with stuff, got back to Stanford and it was just keeping me up at night. I'm like, this is the silliest problem. Like, of course, it's a hard problem, but it's a solvable problem. And so I became determined to solve it and look out at what other industries are struggling to incorporate spatial data. And um, so that's really, really what kicked it off was, you know, this first major user group that, you know, I cared deeply about. And, you know, they had a, an extremely critical and urgent problem. Yeah, that's that, that's really, really interesting. And and what? Yeah, what? So you founded Geosite in 2017 mm-hmm. um, from the initial thesis of what you you know founded the company to, to really solve problem. How has it evolved to what it is today? Oh, that's a really good question. So I started thinking about Geosite in 2017. I think we were actually founded in 2018. And I always count January 2019 as our start because that's when our CTO started. I'm a mechanical engineer running a software company. We probably need a CTO who can actually build software. So so in the beginning, Geosite really was focused on creating a marketplace and a management tool for geospatial data. So we thought the really big problem is people don't know what geospatial data is out there. And then they don't know how to organize and keep that data accessible um, for themselves and and for other users in their organization, and really was focused on this de-siloing, on this making um, you know commercial geospatial data and geospatial analytics accessible to people through a marketplace. Over time, what we realized is our software was much more powerful if that sort of functionality was actually paired with a urgent workflow for that organization, so they could roll out the software immediately. So an example of that is right now, 
you know, our largest customers all use one common thread, which is incident response. So whether it's search and rescue, so Geosite runs the software for search and rescue for the lower 48. So if a hiker gets lost or a plane goes down, you know, we were talking about flying our planes. If we, if we, when you uh, land too hard, because we're not going to talk about crashing, uh, if you land too hard and you set, you set off your ELT, right, that beacon goes up. It comes down to a place called USMCC, which is U.S. Mission Control Center. And if you're in the, the lower 48, it gets sent to a team called AFRCC. And then they use our software to actually visualize where are you, uh, who's nearby that can help you, uh, and actually send help um, if you need it. Or just call you to say, hey, you set off your ELT. And they can triage that whole situation using our software. And really for them, it wasn't just how do we gain access to geospatial data and then manage it? It was, how do we take this very fundamental workflow to our organization and then have geospatial data populated into it at the right moments? And so that's one form of incident response. Another, you know, of course, with insurance is claims. So claims teams are, especially for natural catastrophes or natural disasters, they are trying to incorporate more spatial data. So more satellite data, more, you know, flood data from SAR, more drone data, et cetera, to be able to pay out claims faster. But of course, that data can't live in legacy claims systems because they're not built for spatial data. So rather than just giving people marketplace management tool, what we realized is we had to actually give them an entire application that said, hey, this is an incident response application. It's built for claims. It has the right data. It compares it against your policy data. It compares it against not just your policy data, but the actual building footprints for your policy data. So when you have that accurate flood map, you know how it's affected your specific properties that you have insured. So that's the, the really fundamental change of the company over time was a shift from it's about the data to being no, it's very much about the workflow of the end user and picking those workflows that we think we can affect the most. Awesome. Rob? Rachel, I love that uh, that vision and that description. And, and as somebody who uh, has used the software and, and had teams that use you know, similar software in the past for disaster response, for a declaration of coverage suspensions for underwriting purposes and things like that, I, I know uh, how valuable and I, I know um, how challenging it can be to use traditional tools like like Esri and, and others. So one of the unique things that you guys have is um, what you call an insurance operating platform that enables insurers to kind of incorporate a wide variety of complex geospatial data into one place and then allow them to kind of use it across an array of, of tools and different use cases. You mentioned claims, would love to hear, you know, how you're being used in the underwriting space and then, you know, potentially other applications in the insurance uh, realm as well. Yeah. One of the things that we really love to do um, is data fusion. So if for those of you that were, were at ITC or who are going to, you know, insurance conferences, you'll notice there are a ton of different geospatial analytics companies and a ton of different data providers. And so one of the problems that we set out to solve by by creating, you know, a platform is essentially we can plug and unplug all of these different data sources and analytics, um, you know, results, right? So they'll say, hey, we do we do building damage assess like from damage assessment from drones. Great. That's one possible data layer among 200 different companies that are doing analytics. And so by setting up Geosite as both data and analytic agnostic, and then also as, you know, flexible plumbing, 
what we created was this, you, the insurance operating platform. And in military parlance, we talk about the common operating picture or the COP. So we created the, the IOP or the insurance operating picture. We are like, we want one common picture that you can reference for all of these different processes across the organization um, without having to manually um, do data requests or things like that to look at loss ratios or to look at, you know, what are the, the commercial properties that we might be, you know, looking for other factors for, things like that. So the the IOP, the best way to think about it for for folks who are non-technical is uh, like a socket, right? You can plug all these things in on one side, all the data sources, all the analytics, you know, et cetera. And then on the other side, you can plug in, you know, the claims application, you can plug in an underwriting application, you can plug in a um, a customer alerting application is another one that we're going to be rolling out. Um, but that one's just in beta um, for, for one of our bigger customers right now. Because you have that common platform, now you are future, more future-proof, right? So it might be that there's a new data type in the future that's even more exciting. It might be that there's new analytics in the future that are even more exciting, and you can now swap those in and out. So that that was really the the focus behind creating that um, that insurance operating picture um, was mirroring what we had done on the national security side for the Department of Defense, where they don't know what data they want to use in the future. So you need to leave that flexibility open. And so, you know, I talked about the claims, Rob, you had asked about the the underwriting application, um, where that one gets really fun. You know, our data scientists on our team love working with the underwriting teams because it's a lot of data science. What they're doing is, of course, for for different kinds of um, PNC insurance, whether it's commercial or, or personal, there's a huge difference in flexibility but for commercial property in places, especially like specialized insurance or areas where you can use different factors, letting insurance companies experiment with different data types to see if it helps inform um, their underwriting choices is really important. But also a really exciting project that we're doing um, with one of the world's largest PNC insurers is they are taking, you know, we're helping associate all of their um, their actual customer data to physical places on the earth. So not just lat longs through addresses, but actual building footprints. And then comparing that against, you know, the best of the geospatial analytics that's out there. So they can actually look at future factors that they'd like to get approved. So they're looking at, okay, two years from now, we might want to base our pricing on this new factor that we can determine using this remote sensing data. And we want to do those studies now to figure out if it will affect our loss, loss ratios. So it's a lot of these really interesting um, experiments and giving these underwriting teams the tools to flexibly try out different analytics, flexibly try out different data sources, because it might be, hey, we're curious about this IoT wind sensor. Like if we had this during this disaster, would that have helped us understand things? Or if we had it before the disaster, would the trend lines of where winds tend to be worse affect, you know, how we should have um, priced these these different policies. And so it's really fascinating things that these underwriting teams are doing that, of course, are even more complex in uh, insurance, you know, worlds than than I know. There are a lot of worlds I can nerd on. Uh, underwriting is is still one of the ones I'm learning. And so it's it's fun just putting the, the power of those tools in their hands and then watching. They're like, oh, we're going to use all of these different layers in this way. So that's that's been fun. But of course, those can rely on similar data to the, the claims team, which is dealing with 
claims after a disaster or things like that, um, or creating an application that can alert your customers, hey, there's going to be a hailstorm um, in your area. You know, it might be worth pulling your car into a garage or something. Um, so those those sorts of systems can all talk to each other. Awesome. So walk me through maybe a rudimentary, like what's the underpinning tech behind this? Like where and where is your source data coming from? Ooh, yeah. So for that, I'll I'll back up a touch and just kind of give like a geospatial 101 because, you know, and, and I, I've asked even Rob uh, to come and get, he's given me an insurance 101 before, you know, I got to ask him all of my, my silly insurance questions. Um, so I'll, <laughs> I'll return the favor and do the geospatial 101. So when I talk about geospatial data, really, I'm talking about any data that has location as part of its metadata. And so it's not just satellite imagery. It's not just drone imagery. You know, actually a tweet could be geospatial data, right? Those have location tags to them. I always try to coach people to separate in their minds platforms and sensors. And so when you talk to people about geospatial data, make sure to look out for what is the platform and what is the sensor, because platforms, these are the the things that carry the sensors, right? So you have satellites, you have drones, you have aircraft, right? Like GIC primarily uses aircraft um, to get that extremely high resolution imagery. Planet, which does a photo of everywhere on the earth every day, um, they have lower resolution data and it's from satellites. Um, and then you have everything in between. But then you also have, you know, sensors on the ground that are doing um, you know, in, in, in our world, we do a lot of methane detection, things like that. Um, so you have ground sensors as well. So geospatial data is just any data that has um, geospatial as, as a piece of it. Then there's kind of a secondary area of geospatial data, which is geospatial analytics. So as there was this massive rise in satellite data, drone data, aerial data, et cetera, there was a huge opportunity and, and really the inflection point happened around 2016 in geospatial analytics. So processing was was inexpensive enough that people could train machine vision models on satellite imagery and on um, aerial imagery at scale. So training these models at scale is extremely expensive and the prices had come down enough, both in terms of the data and, you know, compute for people to start to deploy geospatial analytics. So that took off. And this is things like Cape Analytics or um, Crowd AI or URSA or ISI, which they, they both have data sources, right? They own a platform with a sensor, but they also do analytics. And so you have companies, some that produce data that have gone into analytics. You have some that just do analytics based on other people's data. And so for us, when I started Geosite, part of the problem that we wanted to solve for folks was that when you buy an analytic product and you buy maybe some satellite imagery or drone imagery, and you have maybe a database, a CSV file of lat long, you know, um, policy number, right? Those those are three different sets of geospatial data. And the only way before Geosite to combine those things was in a engineering piece of software. So whether it was ArcGIS, which is made by Esri, which is, you know, the world's biggest geospatial software company, or QGIS, which is the open source version of that, or some other geospatial software, you really had to be a geospatial engineer to combine those data sets. So our goal when we launched Geosite was we want folks to not have to learn how to use these highly, highly, highly technical geospatial tools 
in order to actually interact with this powerful data. And so as a way of making sure that we could always provide our customers with the best data and the best analytics, we decided we had to be, we couldn't have a dog in the fight, right? So we decided we we won't create our own data. Geosite will never launch satellites. We will you know, not operate drones or aircraft or things like that. We don't want to produce our own data. Uh, we really don't want to do analytics. Um, there have been a few times where we have had to do analytics. There are a few markets that the geospatial analytics companies haven't focused on. So we've had customers that you know, we go out and we search for an analytics provider for them. And what we get back is, hey, we're not operating in that region yet. We haven't trained models for that that client, that terrain or, you know, whatever. Um, so in those cases, we'll step in and, and help build a model for that customer. But we really try to stay out of it. Um, and we actually really hate doing analytics. So even though we have a, you know, a brilliant, brilliant data science team who they love to do it, of course, because it's tons of fun. But so when where our data comes from is from all of the best sources in the world. So we work with all of the satellite companies. We work with all the drone companies. Um, we work with GIC. We work with, you know, a bunch of others. We work with all of the analytics companies that are producing things. And a lot of times we are, you know, acting on a customer's behalf. So we work with one of the world's largest PNC insurers, and we understand the problem sets that they want to tackle. And then we can help them actually assess these different vendors for the best data and the best analytics, and then make sure that gets plugged into the insurance operating platform, right? The IOP for them so that they can use it in whatever applications they need to. Um, And so for us, it's a really fun position to be in because we get to see the state of the art across the entire geospatial industry. And, you know, we have our own proprietary databases of like, hey, here's every single analytics provider that does uh, roof characterization. And here is how they rank in different regions, because one model might work fantastically in Texas and terribly here in California, not terribly, just not as well here in California, whereas there might be another analytics provider that their models work great in California and are subpar in Texas. And so we can help. Uh, we help our customers make those decisions about, okay, we're going to use this analytic source for this region. We're going to use this one for this region. We're going to use, you know, satellite imagery for the whole country, but then we'll use drone imagery for these urban areas. Um, and and we help them make those those cost trade-offs for, is there business logic behind paying for this? Yeah, because it actually can be pretty daunting yeah. to look at and, and to tackle the comprehensive problem. If you're a nationwide carrier and you ride in 48 markets... Yeah. There's no one size fits all out there. I mean, uh, and, and and there's yeah. you know, and it's exciting what folks like Planet are doing. Who I think is Planet's going public through a SPAC. I think they are. It's really exciting. Yeah, it is. It'll provide more funding for them to keep expanding the platform. And real time, real time imagery is amazing, right? I mean, it's but it's not the end all be all for for every application. Exactly. I mean, I, I my first introduction into uh, insurance was building software to manage roof reports in 2004 you know <laughs> and roof reports are different in every state i mean they just the, the what you do for them is different how you look at them is different and so it, you know in one state you might use a satellite image for a roof report in another state you might use a drone image yeah. i mean it, it just it depends yeah. right and that's i think that's your whole point yeah so people will be like what's the best flood data we'll be like it depends depends yeah <laughs> it, it depends on on what kind of properties you're insuring it depends on where you're insuring them it depends on you know all sorts of things yeah rob well, yeah, and just to add to your point, Rachel, these companies keep leaf, leapfrogging each other, right? 
they keep innovating. There's always new data sources coming on on board. Um, a company that might be behind six months ago is is now you know in the pole position leader. And so it is it can trap you right as an insurance carrier if you pick one of these and they might have been the best at the time, but they're innovating so quickly right uh, that a year from now, two years from now, they not may not be the gold standard anymore. And so partnering with your software to hey it doesn't matter who the data provider is, doesn't matter who the analytics provider is. I've got this unified platform that I can kind of, you know, plug and play. And uh, the other part, exactly to your point, you know, I actually had underwriters uh, on my team when I was back at USA and we would spend a year or two trying to train them to be ArcGIS experts. And and we had people in the company that were GIS experts that went to school just for that. Um, But I couldn't hire them on my underwriting team because that wasn't the job class that I was allowed to have. It's like, okay, are they an underwriter three, two, or one? I'm like, well, they're not. They're something different or whatever. And so, um, you know, I know it's the same in many other organizations. You know, you want to put it in the hands of that claims expert, that underwriting expert, right? That data scientist that uh, you don't necessarily want them to, to, to have to go through the heavy lift that it is to become that ArcGIS expert. You want them to blend um, their their knowledge and their expertise in a, in a usable tool. So I, I love it. I'm a, I'm a fan. And, and, and you know that from when we connected at ITC. Yeah. I, I'd love to. So, you know, you kind of referenced, we did it, uh, have an opportunity to, to sit down together. And I know after we had a chance to chat, you actually, presented at ITC and I saw some some buzz online about your presentation. So, A, just, you know, your impressions of ITC, kind of a, a month out. I know it's a, a newer audience for you than, you know, many of us that have been going for, for years. And what has uh, the reception been from the industry to Geosite so far? Yeah, I mean, ITC was... Well, so on top of it being a new industry, it was also my first big conference back, which I have to say for for those of you that haven't been to a big conference back yet, it's eerie because on the one hand, it's such a paradigm shift from our lives for the last, you know, couple years. Um, but at the same time, it also feels exactly the same. Like it's like riding a bicycle. You're like, oh yeah, this is a conference. Like I got this, <laughs> you know? We had a blast. So I was there along with Jeff, who leads our commercial business. Um, because Geosite has, you know, two we work in government and commercial, and so we have, you know, these two two major leads. I have to say, the number of new acronyms he and I learned was pretty extraordinary um, because the of course insurance has its whole own language and we we had the opportunity to present twice uh, at ITC uh, we got to do a, a demo that we did um, and got to actually show people what we're working on because that's always really fun to just say hey let's just look at it right we're, we're a geospatial company part of our thesis is that a lot of people um, are visual thinkers, right? And so if they can actually just see the data while they're interacting with it, they can they can make faster and more accurate decisions. And then we, I was also on a panel about handling big data. And of course, geospatial is the next big data. It is, it is in fact very heavy, very hard to deal with. It is fundamentally different from dealing with, you know, a table of data or just a, a simple array. It is you know, far more complex. So both of those were really great. And the reception was truly surprisingly amazing. Um, and I think because of the reasons that that the both of you just talked about with it can be hard to, it can be overwhelming to look out across the sea of different geospatial data sources and analytics. And so when we would talk to carriers at the conference, 
we'd basically be like, so how's it going? And they'd be like, oh my gosh, there's it's all of this new data, you know, whatever. Like they were living through the the pain point that we want to solve at the conference itself. So it was this, it was like this microcosm of the bigger problem inside of a conference hall. And um, so it was, it was really fun. And and I really like the insurance industry. There's um, somebody asked me, how does the insurance industry differ from your, the other industries you've been in? And it was a really interesting question because from our standpoint, you know, thinking through data and how it's used and all that stuff, it's, it's different, of course, but it's the, the common problems are still similar. But what I really love about insurance is how clean the KPIs are. Like you're able to actually just look at the numbers and say, how fast are we able to resolve claims? Or, you know, what were our loss ratios? Or what are, you know, our future factors that we're considering? And how will those affect, you know, our our future, you know, our loss ratios? Um, and, and all of these numbers are just things that we can go, oh, okay, cool. Let's do the math, right? And and as an engineer, you know, that's very a very clean way of looking at problems versus, you know, the other worlds that we live in, like national security, there's not always a really clear what, you know, was this a win or was this a loss? It's it's very messy, right? Um, and so I have to say that it's been really fun working in insurance because it is very, I would say, like crisp in terms of like, this is the thing we want to do. And we're like, great, that is feasible, right? Um, but we do actually have to crush some people's dreams when they're like, this is what we want to do. And we're like, you don't want to do that. It will cost more than um, just paying out all those claims because they'll say we want to know you know every roof shingle in in all of this this country and I'm like that's very very expensive. Let's maybe pick you know the areas where where you have the the largest you know properties that you're insuring or things like that rather than trying to roll it out for an entire country. So it's it's been good. It's always fun. James and I were talking a little bit about about. Um, teaching before we we came online it's there's a lot of teaching involved because i don't to your point about arcgis or these geospatial tools being so hard to use because it is such an esoteric field people also don't have a good feel for feasibility um so you spend a lot of time saying okay here's how this works here's how that works you know and, and i really enjoy that so itc was a blast the the reception after the reception to our software afterwards has been has been really exciting as well very cool. Well, let's uh, let's just wrap up the conversation by talking about what's next. So you, you work in a few different industry verticals. You're getting more than just your toes wet in insurance. You, you're really deep diving on claims and underwriting and stitching together different data sources and you're, you're stitching together analytics. So you're putting this into a package that actually makes it usable, right? Like that's the, the difference is you're making all this, yep. you know, really exabytes of data. It's not terabytes of data. It's exabytes of data. Uh, you're making it useful. What's long game here? So for us, um, you know, we want to sit across industries, right? So we want to, you know, we we work in defense, we work in uh, energy, uh, we work in insurance right now. Uh, next year, we'll start launching into utilities, um, which have a lot of similarities in problems with the the energy industry, but also with insurance in terms of insurance is very involved in utilities and, and figuring out risk and, and how things are maintained. So they all kind of interweave um, at some point. Um, but for us, the the long term is 
you know, we've built this platform that has these common threads of problems, whether it's data fusion or communication, so being able to to use a map almost like Google Docs, right? That kind of functionality or, you know, um, incident handling, all of these different things. That way then when people are like, hey, I have this problem and I want to use geospatial data, there's just a tool there for them. Um, and they don't need to, uh, as, as Rob had to, try to create a billet for a geospatial engineer to come in and and solve the problem. So that's that's the long term. And, you know, we've only really been at it for about three years um, and we've been growing really fast. And so it's been very, very exciting. And I think the next couple of years will be even more exciting um, because we, you know, with the, the new stuff we're doing in insurance and the reception there and the major rollouts that we have coming in insurance, uh, in addition to the major rollouts we have and energy, of course, on top of all of the stuff that we already do in defense, um, it's we definitely feel like we're we're hitting a crazy inflection point over the last few months. Is the end outcome a better loss ratio, better pricing? Like, what's the <laughs> for for insurance? Yeah, like what's the end? What's the, yeah? If they if they if they if they work with this technology, what's the end outcome? Is they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna make better underwriting decisions, and they're going to reduce their cost of claims. Or what, what's the what's the what's the end outcome for them? That's a really good question. So uh, earlier we were talking about the the insurance operating platform, right? So the IOP, which you can plug different applications into, right? So the the what what is the the result from each of those is different, right? So for the claims application, you're able to handle more claims faster and more accurately, especially post disaster. Um, so you're able to say, here is the flood extent based on remote sensing data. It's automatically associated against properties. Those are you know, automatically grouped and triaged for the claims team to handle. Um, they can you know, pull out metadata about, hey, what was you know, the total extent of this disaster as they are actually responding to that disaster, right? It can pull out that metadata and start to say, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the big picture that we're seeing um, before the full analysis is done. Um, so that's for claims. It's about you know speed of handling those claims and ability to handle them accurately and and you know really understand them. On the underwriting side, it's about being able to do data driven pricing in the future, right? So it's how can we look at using all of these analytics and all of these remote sensing sources to actually price better in the future, um, which of course is to help improve loss ratios. And that's on the uh, personal property side. On the commercial property side, it's, hey, how can we get a better view of these things without having to send somebody out to every commercial property that we plan to insure? So it's again, a manpower and an accuracy uh, type KPI. Awesome. Well, uh, Rob, any final questions or comments before we move to the news? Yeah, right to know. I think your timing is perfect, right? Because uh, some of those challenges you just articulated, I know, have been top of mind during the pandemic, right? As people haven't been able to do physical inspections and things like that. So um, I know this week we had a, a you know the big climate uh, conference in Glasgow, Scotland was occurring. There was a lot of announcements coming out of that. And uh, by the time this uh, episode drops, I know that you have a big announcement as well, Rachel. So thought you might want to share that with our listeners real quick. Yeah. So uh, in our in our other major industry, so it's it's funny, my team's like, Rachel, do we have to work on all of the most disaster things? Because it's like, you know, claims for natural catastrophes. We're dealing with, you know, war zones. We're dealing with 
the climate. And so we've always we've always had a focus on how do we help with greenhouse gas emissions and most specifically methane within the energy industry. And, you know, we've been working on on helping solve that problem for a very long time. And, you know, AWS, which almost everything lives on AWS, right? They're they're the platform and, and a lot of geospatial data lives in in AWS. Um, they AWS Energy uh, we'll be announcing right around the same time that this this podcast drops our partnership with them to be the platform for greenhouse gas data for the energy industry. So you can imagine, you know, these wells that are out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, near you guys in Texas and and pipelines and things like that, that are places where you can't always send people um, to check on things. And so using remote sensing data to monitor for methane, both from space, drones, aircraft, and ground sensors, right? It's all four of those that have to come together to give a clear picture of where methane emissions are happening and then respond to those. So back to that incident response, create a ticket, send someone out there and get it resolved. AWS is announcing that Geosite will be the the platform for greenhouse gases um, for, for AWS Energy, which is a huge a huge announcement for us and and very exciting. And you know awesome. we're we're hoping we can help put a dent in you know, accidental leaks and, and things like that. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. On that note, uh, and since I am a, a meme hound and speaking about this environmental conference, that's a picture of all the jets that were flown to the environmental conference. <laughs> and I, and I, I loved... Very funny. I, I love this. Of all the meetings, this is the meme, of all the meetings that could have been Zoom meetings... You'd think a climate conference would be first on the list. And of course, everybody flew their private jets there. <laughs> now, as a pilot, you, you can imagine how I feel about people hating on planes. Not great. But, uh, you know, oh, the irony. Oh, the irony. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to denounce everybody else's use of carbon. But don't, don't, don't take away mine. Uh, don't take away mine. No, no, no. Oh, no. We do have some news this week, and uh, of course, Climate Conference was one of them, but actually, the one that I was really interested in came up on my feed today, and it was just an article and discussion in Business Insider on how 109-year-old insurance giants, Limu Emu, Liberty Mutual, plans to cut its IT spend by 49%. That's a pretty big, big IT spend cut by cutting down to one data center, that's right, only one internal data center, and then using Amazon, Microsoft, and Google Clouds. So they believe they can uh, they can reduce their IT spend by uh, almost half. Now, I'll give my thoughts, and Rob, I'd love to hear yours on this. Just moving to the cloud actually doesn't reduce costs unless you re-engineer your platforms. And I, I, I can say this with confidence, after 20 years uh, at JB Knowledge of building applications for insurance and uh, you know hosting it on our own data centers and then migrating uh, a bunch of them into cloud computing. If you simply lift and shift a bunch of virtual machines, you ain't going to save a penny. In fact, it'll actually cost you a little bit more. It only gain the, the, the efficiency savings if you re-engineer your applications to actually leverage uh, cloud computing technology. So you break the applications out, and then you use microservers. You use uh, Kubernetes. You can you, know, you you can use. I mean, there's a lot of different tech that you would use uh, to take advantage of cloud computing. But if you simply lift and shift VMs into the cloud and host it somewhere else, it's not going to save you a lot of money. But if 
Liberty Mutual can do this, it would be massive because their technology spend is enormous. Now, our company, we shut down our last physical data center in the past year, and we we were entirely cloud-based. It was a great move, but it required years of re-engineering applications. So, uh, so Rob, what do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, I know. I, I love your perspective on it, James. And it's interesting, first of all, just the 49%, right? They don't go to the full, full 50%, like somebody's hedging their bets there. But I, I do know at one point, I don't know if this is still true, that State Farm actually had the largest private data center in the world. And so, right, that just gives you a sense for that, the, the largest uh, insurers, it, it is massive. So I could see massive pain and potential for for massive gain. I know insurance companies in general have been a little bit um, more reluctant uh, to move to the cloud than others. And quite frankly, in my view, a lot of them kind of, I think were kind of getting nudged by uh, Microsoft Azure. You know, they're all kind of Microsoft jobs. AWS came, that's where all the startups are, right? But I think it was like until Azure kind of, oh, this is a Microsoft offering. Like it must be legit because we use Office and we use Teams and, you know, so yeah, to your point, I see more diversification among the the three major cloud providers. But uh, an interesting move by Liberty, and we'll uh, I'll be curious to see who moves next and how quickly that happens, or if everyone's going to let them go at it for a while and see how that works out. I almost feel like they're holding on to that last data center as a safety blanket. <laughs> you know, like yeah, like yeah. seriously, if this goes wrong. Yeah, just just go all in, man. If you're gonna just. Just pick two. You know, if I were picking two, it'd be Azure and AWS. Azure is my favorite. Then again, I've built 20, 20 years of companies off of Microsoft Tech Stack. And so uh, I'm super comfortable in that ecosystem. But uh, I always feel like, like, pick a lane, Beavis. Like, come on. You know, like, <laughs> if you're going to have three, you might as well just, t- you might as well just cut your in house data center and move on. But I bet you a uh, hundred bucks. They're still running a bunch of old COBOL applications and some AS400 underwriting applications. And they have some they have some rate books that are set over here in a in a in a RS6000. You know, I mean, there's stuff they're running that they can't get rid of. I guarantee, I guarantee you. I don't even want to think about how many different policy and rating applications that they have because you know it's not all in one application. It's got to be more complicated than that. Rachel, I mean, cloud computing is a brave new world, but there's a lot of fake cloud out there. With people just uh, you know hosting things elsewhere, you, you think you think they'll actually save half their money? I don't know. It's hard to say. I think the actual opex of having to manage data centers and the and the actual electricity energy spend, which is done much more efficiently at these you know huge huge server farms run by the different cloud companies. I think it's possible. What might be really interesting is if they're just not going to migrate a lot of the the software that they're currently using. And of course, for me, I'm like, oh, this is great because the way way we've been rolling out is in parallel with, you know, we're we're in AWS, even on the insurance side. So we just sit in parallel and like VPN, you know, APIs to talk to their old systems. So that migration might happen and they might move to new cloud native software solutions. So if they do that at the same time that they're moving over, I think they could absolutely save 49, not 50, 49%. Such a specific number. Just say 50, man. You don't really know <laughs> that much, but, uh, you know, just round up. Find if... it might be, it might be like a board approval thing. Like, yeah, if they're right? going to change something by 50%. <laughs> this is like, this is like, 
my policy, my policy brain is sitting here. So there's some policy somewhere in their tra- like charter that says like if something's going to change by fifty percent, you have to get these levels of approval. <laughs> and they're like, we'll do forty nine. <laughs> this is somebody like skirting a rule, uh, which is brilliant. I'm all for hacking bureaucracies, and so I think there's probably this is a, a policy, not a calculation sort of determination. That is hilarious. On to your news, Rob. What you got this week? Well, the biggest news, James, of course, uh, that was kind of having everybody buzzing is uh, it's finally here. Lemonade is going to offer car insurance. So I've uh, put a link in there to the Wall Street Journal article on this. Of course, there was articles all over the place on it. Now, this actually created a bit of a, um, a rabbit hole for a different reason. And that is because the Wall Street Journal headline talked about the InsureTech firm Lemonade, InsureTech being I-N-S-U-R-E-T-E-C-H. And so we've had the conversation many times on this podcast, it's James. It's got the E. How is it spelled? It's got the, the E, dash though. is uh, a new one. And so that created a lot of consternation on Twitter. But that aside... Um, you know, uh, Dana Schreiber, who's the, the co-founder and CEO, had said that uh, they are hoping to make this mostly based on telematics. But uh, as it rolls out now, and Illinois is the first state that it's rolling out, they are still using those wonderful traditional rating factors of age, gender, and insurance credit scores. Um, so not necessarily new and novel yet. But um, I'm sure with everybody else talking about bundling, obviously, we know Lemonade started in the, the renters and home space. It expanded to pet and life insurance. They finally made the move a year after the IPO to offer auto insurance in the U.S. Mm, yeah, exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting. They need, I mean, look, it is. predictable. It is. We've all right? been waiting. We've all been speculation. So the speculation can end. And I don't know if anyone's got betting pools out there. <laughs> and and the debate is over. InsureTech is spelled with an E. Because the Wall Street yeah, Journal says so. There you go. If the Wall Street Journal says yeah. it must be uh, official. Yeah, right? it must be an E. All right. The other thing I wanted to share real quick um, is I had an opportunity to uh, speak to the second cohort of the Israeli Intratech Accelerator. Um, so they have four new startups there, Covery, Notion, Cyber, and Urbanico. And I can tell you I've had one-on-one sessions with each of these uh, companies as well as uh, giving them a mentoring session on the perils of selling into the U.S. Uh, insurance market. <laughs> so, Rachel, some of the conversations that you and I had, I've had with these uh, startups. And I just want to say congratulations. You know, this, we know uh, that Israeli founders have, you know, Lemonade, we just talked about, right? Hippo, I could go on and on. Um, and so uh, my good friend, Kobe Bendelak, has started this Israeli InsurTech Accelerator. And it's just wonderful to see all these folks in Tel Aviv that are going to be changing the world over here in Europe, elsewhere in, in, in Asia and in, in the world. And so it's just really cool experience to be able to meet to some of these folks that you're going to be hearing from these companies uh, down the line for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool, man. Very cool. And we, you know, we, we've, we have interviewed a ton of insure techs from Israel on the show. And, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of the, comes out of Israel in the future. Well, it's been a wonderful discussion, Rachel. Thank you for joining us today and, uh, congratulations on the new announcement. And, uh, we're excited to have you as part of the insure tech with an E community. But not a dash or with a dash? No dash. No dash. No dash. Yes. No dash with an E. Uh, well, <laughs> 
Thanks for, for having me, guys. It's It's been a blast and looking forward to uh, continuing to, to listen and stay up to date, too, based on uh, on your guys' stuff. Yeah, and since you're a, a fellow pilot, may your takeoffs equal your landings. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit dark, a little bit dark there. <laughs> Rob Galbraith, uh, good, all, always good to talk with you, brother. Absolutely, James. Always great to catch up. Another great week. Yeah, another great week in, in business and good 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 week to be in InsureTech. And uh, thank you all to, and out in listener land for listening to the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge, jbknowledge.com, all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, and Kara Dalton, our, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. Look forward to talking to you. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time. Thank you.